1: That music tells you it's time for another edition of Political Rewind. We're here with you today. I'm Bill Nygut. Lots to talk about. But before we get to the panel and the topics of the day, have got a few announcements I'd love to make. Uh, number one, uh, yesterday we announced for the first time that we're taking the show on the road again. We're going to be in Augusta. On Monday night, August 12th at 7 o'clock, we're going to be at the Jesse Norman School of the Arts. And as I mentioned yesterday, I absolutely don't feel like I have anywhere near the class that you would need to be at a school named after the great, great operatic singer Jesse Norman. But we'll be there. Uh, You can uh, get free tickets at uh, politicalrewind.org. We ask you to go ahead and get tickets because we do want to make sure that we have seats for everyone. So do that now, and we're looking forward to seeing all of you out in Augusta. Second of all, Tom Faust just uh, sent me a note that the PSC, you, if you heard the show yesterday, you heard us talk about the uh, George Power plan, three-year plan for using new energy sources to uh, uh, uh uh, create power. They're going to have much bigger mix of solar, and they uh, presented that plan to the PSC, which oversees their work, and the PSC just a few minutes ago uh, approved it. Uh, yesterday, you heard uh, Vice Chair Tim Eccles talk about how he felt that was a very important move for Georgia Power to move away from coal uh, toward more sustainable forms of energy. And finally, just Kevin Riley, a quick note. Do you know what 1 year from tonight will be? It will be it's not a quiz. 1 year from tonight, the democratic nominee for president, she or he will give her or his acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee. This election's coming up fast. Wow, already? I can't believe that. I don't want to think about it. Uh, That's Kevin Riley, Of course, he's the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us on Tuesdays to be a part of uh, this show. And, uh, I mentioned yesterday that I, I really had a wonderful few weeks in Ireland, and Kevin Riley made it better because it was Kevin Riley who told me that while I was in Ireland, I must uh, find the best single pot still Irish whiskey. <laughs> and you enhanced my trip to no end, Kevin. I'm glad I could make such an important <laughs> contribution. You you really did. Uh, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to the G P B News page on Facebook, um, uh, Ed Lindsay, former state representative republican from Atlanta is back with us again today. He now runs the government affairs practice for the state of Georgia of Dentons, the world's largest law firm. Hi Ed, how are you? Always happy to be here. You have you have a big day coming up next week. <laughs> no, seriously. I did. What's happening?
2: I do. My son uh, Charlie uh, returns from uh, a country called Malawi in Central Africa. He's been there for two and a half years in the Peace Corps.
1: That's you, I know how proud you are we of are very uh, the proud work of that he's done there. So congrats! I know, and we all yep. know what it's like to have our kids come home. It so is. good for you, um, Andy Miller. Georgia Health News uh, is with us today. Andy, we're really uh, pleased to have you today because we want to really dig into some of the healthcare news that's going on. How have you been?
3: I'm great, Bill, thanks for, thanks for having me. Sure,
1: and we have a new panelist, Sally Harrell. Sally, you uh, made pretty big news in the election cycle last year. You, as a Democrat, won Senate District 40, the seat that had been held forever by Fran Miller who finally stepped down. Um, You'd served in the House for a number of years before that. But Sally, if I can, I'd like to point out that you, in addition to your accomplishments recently, also made history, as the lawmakers reported a number of years ago. Finally tonight, for the first time in Georgia history, (laughs) a little baby is in the House chambers every day. Representative Sally Harrell decided against daycare for her newborn. And at the ripe eight, young age, rather, of seven and a half weeks, baby Joseph is staring the political world straight in the face.
0: Well, I really didn't have much choice given that he was born on Christmas Eve. And so he was born December 24th. The session started January 10th. So I, if I, I needed to watch him and serve my constituents at the same time. So fortunately, the speaker was supportive of me doing this. And so here we are.
1: Thomas B. Murphy. He didn't say no, he didn't say yes. He, but Because he didn't say no, you brought baby Joseph. How old is baby Joseph
0: now? Uh, Joseph is now 19 years yes, old.
1: Yes, okay. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> um, We're glad to have you uh, on the show today. And we should tell people your district is northeast uh, mostly. You have parts of Shambly mm-hmm. You go up uh, 85, essentially. R- pretty far up and also spread out a little of the west of up that way. Is that right?
0: I have all of Dunwoody. All of Dunwoody. Okay. Uh, kind of in the middle. I go down to the North Lake Tucker area and then have Brookhaven and then most of the city of Peachtree Corners wow. in Gwinnett County.
1: Okay. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Kevin Riley, um, we are going to talk a lot about health care on the show today, but let's start uh, with the fact that we're now getting, uh, two days later, response that uh, your uh, reporter in Washington, Tamara Hallerman, has been gathering from the Georgia delegation to the president's tweets uh, about the so-called squad, uh, the four Young members of Congress, freshman members of Congress, who he has, um, many people feel disparaged in totally inappropriate ways. So we're now starting to see Georgia reaction to that, and it runs the gamut.
4: Right. I, I, I mean, you said inappropriate, but I think the media has come round to, as we have at the AJC, to the view that his comments were racist. And uh, I know that there's been a lot of talk about exactly what to call them, and there's been, obviously, lots of talking heads on television trying to find a way to talk about those comments and, and characterize them somehow. But the bottom line is it's tough to look at them any other way, and Republicans are presented with a horrible situation because... They all know they need the support of this president and this uh, and his voters. And uh, what are they supposed to say about this? They're, there's really nowhere to go on
1: it. Um, probably the comment that uh, people might have expected to come from Johnny Isaacson is, is the harshest uh, response to the president's remarks. Johnny said, "I wasn't elected to make excuses or explain the statements of somebody else, and I'm not going uh, to do that." he said, but he went on to say that they were totally inappropriate remarks. Uh, on the other hand, Ed Lindsey, uh, David Perdue, uh, said he didn't think there's anything racist or really wrong about the remarks at all. I, it, Perdue is absolutely determined to stand shoulder to shoulder with the president all the way to the, uh, uh, through the 2020 election.
2: Well, you know, at some point you need to start trying to do, or someone needs to do a psychological uh, review of... How folks react when someone whom they normally agree with says something so offensive versus uh, how you react when it's an opponent. And, and we've seen that in this situation as we've seen a few months ago when uh, Representative Omar uh, from Minnesota made her anti-Semitic remarks. And so many Democrats uh, tried to excuse it or minimize it. And now you've got the same similar situation. With some Republicans, I'm very proud of Senator Isaacson's view, very proud of what uh, Tim Scott said and Richard Burr uh, from Missouri and Susan Collins and, uh, and a lot of other Republicans who have sort of ste- – who have stepped up and said that this comment is – it's un-American, it's offensive, and it's unduly uh, divisive, uh, particularly during these times that we're going through. Um, <laughs>
4: But is it strategic is the question? Is it not, Bill? Is, is, are the comments the president made part of a strategy or an impulse?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. I mean, there, there, he, he is now suggesting that he has put the Democrats, uh, the Nancy Pelosi wing of the party, the, the folks who are being a little bit more moderate in the way they approach the president, certainly in terms of impeachment, in a position where they now are being asked to defend uh, the four uh, uh, liberal uh, voices that the president was attacking, AOC, Ilhan Omar, and uh, and the others, uh, Ayanna Pressley. Um, but Sally, I'm interested in Doug Collins, because here's a, Doug Collins, you were in the legislature with Doug Collins, and, and he has always been an extremely well-liked member of whatever body he's in. As the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, of course, he's turned into President Trump's most vociferous supporter and used really harsh language in many cases in talking about uh, the Democratic majority on the Judiciary Committee. He threaded the needle in an interesting way, and I want to get your reaction to it. He said, President Trump is frustrated, this is a quote, that Congress has not acted to solve the crisis at our border and he expressed his frustration in a way that didn't promote reconciliation across the aisle and across our country. Pretty interesting way to frame that. Your thoughts?
0: It is an interesting way to frame it, but I think it's, he's trying to duck the issue. Really? Okay. I do, I do. Um, it, it was clearly a racist comment. I mean, it brought memories back for me of, being on the playground growing up because that was a common, that was a common line to use. Go back where you came from, I mean, yeah. and it, so it, it immediately upon hearing it brought back memories for me. There's nothing, there's 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 nothing to it than than playground bully racist language. Yeah,
1: I I, I know there seems to be a consensus. Just to be clear, before everybody starts tweeting and going on Facebook <laughs> Live, Andy. Um, My sense of for us here at George Public Broadcasting, um, we prefer to let those of you who are newsmakers and others uh, describe what how you would characterize uh, the remarks. But there's no question the president went across. he stepped over a line further than he has ever before.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting to me is David Perdue's comment that uh, that he uh, you know, he felt it was outrageous to suggest that those comments were racist. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out next year. Uh, It it, it almost seems like he he feels like you're like you said that he's attaching himself to Trump just like Lindsey Graham is. And be interesting to see how if this comes back in terms of damaging him you know statewide as he as he looks for 2020
2: keep in mind that lindsey graham came out against the comments
3: oh he did okay and and and
2: felt them to be offensive uh and and totally inappropriate
1: well but and then went on to make comments about the four women yeah. involved that were perhaps even more extreme than what the president himself said well, he, he called he, them he, communists he questioned he their policies he said they hate america he, he questioned <laughs> their policies he went back to questioning
2: their policies and quite frankly some of their uh, positions and some of their statements have been quite offensive uh you know we, we've already talked i've already talked about representative omar but some of the others have made other equally offensive comments uh, that that it, you know, just as it's appropriate and I think important for Republicans to speak out about President Trump, it's equally appropriate, I think for Democrats to speak out when they have things happen oh, that are said that are so offensive from members of their party. I'm remembered to quote that great philosopher, uh, Dumbledore, uh, <laughs> who said, it takes courage to stand up to your enemies. It takes even greater courage to stand up to your friends.
1: Well, Kevin, I do think it's fair to say, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time in this because we, we're so lucky to be able to have, have uh, Andy Miller here to talk health care with us, but l- let's continue just for a couple more minutes. Um, I do think it's important to point out when, when, when uh, some Republicans have accused this group of four of being uh, anti-Semitic, which they've done, they're clearly referring to uh, Ilan Omar, who early on in her tenure did make a couple of remarks about supporters of Israel that were offensive to a lot of the Jewish community. But what but... Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats did, in fact, speak up and suggest to her that she should be cautious about the language she uses. So I don't think it's Uh, fair to say. I
2: I think I think it is fair to say, and I don't mean to cut Kevin up and I apologize. But I I do think it's fair to say, because when given a chance uh, to denounce that language and to call uh, Representative Omar out uh, for that offensive language, uh, the Democratic caucus ducked. And chose not to do so.
4: Well, I'm not Uh, sure I agree with Ed that they ducked, and I cannot I cannot call on some of the philosophers and stuff that as he did (laughs) in his comments. I'm not that well read, but I can say this: there is a huge difference between a first term member of the House and the leader of the free world when these kind of comments are made. I don't excuse. I don't think any of us should excuse anti-Semitic, racist comments ever from anyone, but. When the president says something, that is different. So, so I'm Sa- not defending his comment. So,
1: Sally, <laughs> you are an example of a Democrat who won uh, because of a, uh, a constituency of suburbanites, many of them women, who have turned against what they saw as, I think, um, a, a, you know, a president who was not running the country in the way they wished he would. I think that's fair to say. What do you think these comments are going to do in terms of electing Democrats uh, next year in communities, especially with a lot of suburban women?
0: Well, first of all, I agree with Kevin that I think you know, there's the question of, was it a racist statement? I think everybody's kind of agreeing on that. The secondary question is probably a more important, was it strategic? And I had a conversation with my 19-year-old son about that uh, before we got here, and I was on the side that I thought it was very strategic in order to divide the, the populace. Uh, my son didn't quite agree with me. He thought that trump just isn't very smart (laughs) um but i think if you look back in history you do see examples of politicians who say things in order to pit one group of people against another group of people and i think that's probably the strategy and you will see that played out here in georgia
1: so um i want to move on uh, but this gives me a chance to to mention uh, uh to promote ahead to tomorrow's show because tomorrow we're going to talk a lot about hate speech in politics today and about bigotry in politics today. Um, one of our guests tomorrow is Sam Olens. Many of you saw an op-ed piece that Sam published, that the AJC published on Sunday. Sam Olens, who was the attorney general for two terms, t- he won two races for attorney general. He left early in the second term. Uh, but he won statewide. And for the first time in the piece he wrote for you, Kevin, came out and said, I was the subject of a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric when I would travel around the state uh, to to campaign for that office. And he said, and I was silent. I took it, it, gritted my teeth and kept running my race. And he said, I now recognize that was a mistake. You have to speak out against bigotry. And he'll be here tomorrow along with uh, Theron Johnson and Andre Gillespie to talk about that and how it fits into this larger picture that we're talking about in terms of bigotry in politics. And
4: most important of all, the people who are currently contacting you on Twitter and Facebook can save their comments for that show tomorrow. Because <laughs> <laughs> we got to get to Andy and this healthcare yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> let's do that. Uh, let's move on. Thank
1: you all for uh, your remarks about the latest controversy Washington. Um, Andy Miller, we have a couple of big healthcare stories developing right now. The, The first one that we should probably address is the fact that we now have a field of Democratic presidential candidates, many of whom are now saying they support Medicare for all. Now we can talk about those who are not promoting Medicare for all, but it's become a major theme among democratic candidates, and I'd like to get into it a little bit with you in the panel. First of all, what do we what does Medicare for all mean? It's, it's, it's more than just government run health care. It's more specific than that, isn't it?
3: It is. Medicare is an extremely popular program, and it covers more than 40 million Americans. And uh, what Bernie Sanders has called for and and other Democratic candidates have joined in on is the idea that we want to take private insurance largely out of the equation and put everybody, those people who are uninsured, those people with private insurance, everybody into a Medicare program. Uh, It would cost a whole lot of money. As you might expect, it's something like three trillion dollars. That's what the Sanders plan would do. Now, uh, it is a you know a problem in America. It's a problem in our state that we have many people who have no coverage, and we have many more people that have really high deductible health plans that are really uh, feel it when they have a large medical bill. So it pulls. It actually polls uh, pretty well, but the case is, the case could be made that on the other side, you would say, okay, you're going to tell 160 million Americans who get private insurance, you're going to tell them all that we're going to take away your health care and put you in a government program. Now, those of us that are on Medicare can say it's a good program, but you're still taking people away out of private insurance and you're taking away the health plan. And they don't, they won't know what is down at the the other end of the highway there. And so politically, it's gonna be very tricky if if Sanders is the nominee to be able to argue that against the fact that you're gonna be taking 150 million people, that's a lot of people. So you're I recognize,
1: I apologize for that. Yeah. I, I recognize that there are a number of candidates with different variations on the Medicare for all plan, but just in general, you talk about the cost, a price tag of some $3 trillion. Uh, all of us here at this table or those of us or those people listening in who are receiving paychecks uh, we pay a certain percentage of our income uh, to a medicare tax that we draw on when we get to the point where we need medicare uh, do the plans, for the most part, call for a continuation of a uh, pay-in by individuals to uh, the pot that will then be drawn upon for Medicare?
3: I assume so, and it'll be interesting to see if, if this eventually <clears throat> becomes what we have in our health system. It'll be interesting to see where today we now have private insurance supplying Medicare coverage through a Medicare Advantage plan, and more yeah. and more seniors are taking that option. Uh, or whether it's like traditional Medicare where uh, basically the government runs your plan rather than an insurance company.
1: and it it feels like Medicare for all. Uh, it, it may be something that that is a smart way to approach making sure everybody has health insurance, but putting aside the practical potential practical impact, it's it's playing into a Republican. Uh, meme about the Socialist Democratic Party. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, you know, and it gets back to the devil in the details. The interesting thing is uh, Medicare for all is a phrase that that I'm sure polled well. That's why they're using it as opposed to single payer, which doesn't poll so well. And then, but, you know, a lot of folks not re- are not real sure what it means. And when they start being told, well, by the way, uh, you're going to lose your ability to have uh, prop- your own private health insurance that you like. Uh, to be able to continue. Then all of a sudden the numbers drop dramatically. The fact of the matter is for approximately 160 million Americans who have private health insurance, an overwhelming percentage of them like uh, what they have and don't really want to see that change. Uh, How do you deal with those folks who want to keep things the way they are for what they have and also deal with the problem of the uninsured? I don't think that uh, that Medicare for All is, is going to be viewed as the answer. A lot of Democrats who don't believe Medicare for All is the answer, uh, one of the most notable of which is is Joe Biden. And and a lot of other folks recognize that there are some inherent flaws once you drill down and start taking a look, and so they're starting to go the other way because they don't want to be, I think, rightly labeled with the socialist label. I yeah. mean, a lot of the leading Democrats have come out for this and, and, and have publicly said that means yes, that means you will lose your private insurance. Uh, Warren Sanders, Harris. I'm not sure. I think some of the other ones. The
4: ones who raised their hand at that yeah. debate, right? Yeah, and
2: yeah, that's fine. what I'm trying to remember who I'll all raised. Well, hand they
4: can't to. remember either. So don't let it <laughs> yeah, find that's me.
1: exactly right. Yeah,
3: um, that was a couple of weeks ago. Things change.
1: <laughs> uh, Sally, I wonder. You know, did you use was healthcare an issue that you uh, hit upon during your race? Because a lot of Democratic candidates did pre-existing condition, conditions, especially being something that Democrats used in 2018.
0: Yes, it was a huge issue in my campaign, only topped by public education. Yeah. And I would say that I heard um, from my constituents, yes, we need, something needs to be done about health care, because even people who are insured are often underinsured and are facing very high costs. And so, you know, we live, we live in a society that has an economy that's based on profit. Um, and that's that's good. That that works well for us. There's two areas, though, where it doesn't work as well f- for, and that's health care and education. So, but uh,
1: you know, I wonder, Kevin, um, whether Democrats maybe are miscalculating the message from 2018, which was, yes, health care was a huge issue for candidates like Sally Harrell, but it was about Ma- preserving pre-existing conditions. It was about making sure that, you know, your child could stay on your health care plan until they were 26 years old. There's a big leap from protecting pre-existing conditions to Medicare for all.
4: Well, yeah, I can remember the days, and and we've talked about polling, right? And we saw that all the time in our coverage at the AJC. People hated Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, when you use that terminology. But when you talked about aspects of it or what it meant, they actually liked it. But the idea of convincing those 150 or 60 million mm-hmm. people that, yeah, you got this great health care plan and you're, it's a point of pride with the company you work for and all that, and guess what? That's going away and you've got to be part of Medicare. I, I just think that Americans will be suspicious Andy? of that.
3: and that's why Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, yeah. are pushing something that would build upon the Affordable Care Act rather than go to something mo- much more sweeping in terms of Medicare. For so health.
1: both of them, Biden just released his plan yesterday. Both of them, in general, are saying we want to protect the best of the Affordable Care Act, like pre-existing conditions, and we because we want we know there are many people who are happy with uh, ACA and the plan they've bought, but we do want to have a government-run option that people could buy into. Fair enough? Is that pretty much in the most broad terms what that's all about?
3: Yeah, it is. So a public option, it could mean, it depends on the details, as Ed would say, but basically it would allow uh, someone without insurance to buy into a Medicare-like program. Interestingly, Biden said that he would for the peop- for the states that did not expand medicaid including georgia he would allow the people that would have gotten coverage under a medicaid expansion in those 14 states to go into that
1: at no cost at no cost yeah.
3: go into that public option ed well the, like getting back to the devil
2: being the details public option sounds good uh when you first hear it the, the problem is what exactly is it going to mean is it going to mean a basic uh, in the same form that you see uh, non uh, not-for-profit health providers, health insurance providers like Blue Cross Blue Shield, or is it going to be some kind of subsidized uh, premiums in which you try to keep the rates low? The problem with the former is, like as as you've seen, for instance, with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee, uh, have had astronomical costs go through the roof, and they've lost several hundred million dollars in recent years. So you've got that problem. Then you've got the problem of, well, if you try to control cost, are you going to simply set the premiums artificially low and try to mandate how much uh, medical providers can receive for their services, in which case you're going to face the same problem that is now exists for Medicaid in which a lot of medical providers are running away from uh, providing uh, coverage for Medicaid folks. So there's any time that you start dealing with, with health insurance You've got to ultimately, so far we haven't been able to do this, you've got to ultimately try to figure out how are we going to reduce the cost of health care.
3: Well, way, if you don't
2: attack that, uh,
3: you, you know, all these plans on the left or the right are going to fail. One way that Biden suggests, and people across both aisles of the political spectrum have suggested, is to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Yeah. Uh, with with the drug companies, uh, that's something that's not allowed now, and uh, I think you would you would say that Democrats and Republicans see the co- the cost of prescription drugs as a huge issue to their constituents.
1: So uh, I agree it, with that in mind. Kevin Kamala Harris just released a plan about prescription drugs herself uh, this earlier this well I think yesterday or early this morning, uh, she's proposing a a policy in which Uh, Drug prices would be, you'd compare drug prices by pharmaceutical companies in the United States to drug prices for the same drug in Canada, European countries, and the pharmaceutical companies would be no longer allowed to set the price for their medications at a higher price level than what's being done by other countries. And if they continued to do it at a higher level, she would allow Americans to purchase their drugs on uh, foreign uh, exchanges, essentially. It's an. You know, this is something the Trump administration has been talking about over and over, reducing drug prices, but every time they come close to saying they've got a policy, it ends up evaporating because they can't quite
4: figure out how to make it work. Right. I, I also think another part of this, I mean, I don't want to sound too cynical, but what is going to play better in a campaign, right? I mean, that's part of what they're fishing around for. So a vague government option... Are people going to get behind that? The idea that I could get prescription drugs much cheaper. Are people going to get behind that? Medicare for all. Are people going to get behind that? I mean, I really think that's what, what they're trying to figure out now, because we know, as Ed's pointed out, it's incredibly complicated. Sally, what, from stuff. your point of view, um,
1: uh, what, what are these Democratic plans going to do to people's thinking about the election in 2020, especially Medicare for all?
0: Well, first of all, I think it's it's our role as Democrats to come up with a plan, not to tear everything down. Our, our, our people, the people of the United States, want a solution to this problem. And so it's our job to do that. Okay, but how
1: far do you go with that? Well,
0: you know, I had a conversation with my mother about Medicare. My dad has a lot of health issues, and she was bragging about how great Medicare is. And I looked at her, and I said, yeah, Mom... I really wish I could get Medicare too. (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, I never dreamed I would say this, Sally, but I wish you could too, because Uh she's got four daughters and we all have different plans. We all work hard, but some of our plans are better than the others. And she worries about us. So to all these people who are like, oh, I don't want to leave my great private plan. I say, you might not know what you're missing. So, ultimately, I would love to see the Medicare program um, adjusted down in age incrementally to cover more young people. And people talk about the cost, but the cost, you basically transfer what you're going to pay into private insurance to pay into the Medicare tax. So, if you're going to talk about it being an expensive program, so is private health care. It's I the get same to, money.
1: I got to get to a break. Andy, give you the last word in this segment.
3: I don't, I don't ever hear people who have Medicare say that I'd love to go back to what I used to have. Mm. I mean, it is a tremendously popular program. All
1: right. Um, This is going to be an issue we will talk about throughout uh, the 2020 election cycle. So we will come back to this, I'm sure, time and time again. Uh, There's another issue that involves health care, this one in the courts. And it's an issue that could, in fact, strip more than 500,000 Georgians of their uh, affordable care health insurance plans at the worst extreme of what could happen. We'll talk about that in a lot more when we come back from this break. Hey, this
2: is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction.
4: Go to gpb.org cars or call
0: 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. On the next Fresh Air, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Colson Whitehead His new novel, set in the early 60s, is based on the true story of a notorious Florida reform school where many boys were beaten and sexually abused. Dozens of unmarked graves were discovered on the school grounds. The state shut down the school in 2011. The novel's called The Nickel Boys. Join us.
1: Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 on
3: GPB and gpbnews.org.
1: We're back on Political Rewind. with a panel talking about health care, uh, we're going to get to a number of other issues uh, on, that are uh, popping up today as the show moves along. But but we do, Andy Miller, as long as we have you here from Georgia Health News, let's talk about this case that started in uh, Texas, in the Texas uh, federal courts, and now has gone to an appeals court in New Orleans. It is a lawsuit that was filed by, among others, uh Chris Carr is a signature uh, has has uh, uh, been a partner in this case, and I'm going to let you explain it. But but essentially, what this lawsuit says, right, Andy, is that when the Obama administration created the Affordable Care Act, there was a mandate that you had to join, buy into the system. If you did not, you were fined for not doing it. A tax penalty. Yeah. Tax penalty. The courts ruled that the mandate was illegal,
3: right? Well, that's yeah. what, uh, basically what happened was Congress, uh, the Republican Congress took away or zeroed out the individual oh, that Oh, I'm mandate. sorry.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It was Congress that did that. Right. And, and then the courts, and, and then, then the lawsuit came And then in.
3: the lawsuit came up about and uh, the opponents of the Affordable Care Act found, essentially found the right judge in Texas that that heard the case and decided that, yeah, if this, if the individual mandate is zeroed out, then that makes the whole law unconstitutional, including your pre-existing condition coverages and protections, including things like allowing your children to stay on their, your plan until they're age 26, very popular things. So uh, there was a stay on that decision. Now it's in the federal court in New Orleans, a three-judge panel, two of which are Republicans, who asked some sharp questions of the defenders of the law, which were Democrat state attorney generals and also the House of Representatives. So
1: the appeals court now, Kevin really has several options on how they may decide this case eventually. One of them is they could do something relatively narrow, which is to make a ruling on whether people should be, in fact, required to buy insurance on the exchanges, essentially uh, overturning what Congress said on that score. They also could decide that because there is no longer any kind of mandate, the entire law is unconstitutional and essentially end obamacare which as i said would end insurance for at least half a million people right here in georgia not to mention all the people across the country well
4: that's so what's that's what's so puzzling about this to me is that i get that when the law was passed the republicans took the position we were going to undo this or repeal and replace all of that and that the democrats were on the side of we're going to keep it going and then the supreme court had that sort of split the baby ruling but do the Republicans, Ed, really want to be in a spot where this all would go away? I mean, isn't that kind of politically dangerous? Or do you think that's where they want to be? Like, why have they kept pressing on this thing?
2: Well, to sort of build on what Sally was saying a moment ago, because she talked about it's, up, you know, it's incumbent upon Democrats to come up with a, a plan that will actually work dealing with health care. And if, in fact, it, this is overruled, Uh, In terms of its constitutionality, Uh, that burden squarely also falls on Republicans in the 2020 campaign. It's not going to be enough to simply talk about the evils of Obamacare or the evils of single payer. Uh, But it is going to go is going to be incumbent upon Republican candidates from the president down to say this is what will work. And and if I can also sort of go back to the legal issue for a minute, the this lawsuit really sort of hinges on the the key aspect of Justice Roberts' decision upholding Obamacare in 2012, in which he he based his ruling of finding it constitutional on the on the existence of this tax. If you did not. Uh, by insurance. And so that therein lies the legal justification for the lawsuit. But to get back to your question, yeah, it's going to put an enormous burden on Republicans, and quite frankly, rightfully so, because uh, both parties, and hopefully puts the burden on both parties to say, okay, it's time for us to come together. Uh, and work out something that will actually work.
1: Yeah, Sally, I want to get you in the mix on this, Uh, but to do that, um, Chris Carr uh, was on this show, it's been some months now, he's on in February, and we pressed him on this. We said, you know, why, Mr. Attorney General, did you want to join a lawsuit that could completely overturn Obamacare, and uh, let's listen to just a little bit of what he said about that, and then Sally, I'll ask you about his remarks.
4: Here, the bottom line, uh, Bill, is this: back in in 2012, when the first lawsuit came, uh, the first lawsuits mm-hmm. were filed. Chief Justice Roberts, in essence, said this is constitutional because of the taxing authority. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to December of 2017, and then the Trump administration signs the bill that did away with the constitutional. That doesn't speak to anything about access to health care or quality health care. We're all for that in pre-existing conditions.
1: So. Uh- Caraselli is essentially saying uh, this isn't a question about whether Obamacare is good, bad. It's it, We're indifferent to that. This is about the rule of law.
0: Right. And if we... What I've learned about policy is that crisis drives policy. If things are OK, it's hard to get a bill passed. But if we're in crisis, then it's easier to get something passed. So if this destroys what's left the popular parts of the ACA and if it destroys the ACA I think it will send us back to the drawing board and it will it may help us uh, come up with something even even better
1: but Andy it took so long to get any kind of plan that the question is if it's overturned people are waiting for the next step will be without insurance for some time potentially
3: presidents from as far back as Harry Truman have been working on the health uh, trying to fix health care and uh, it will be interesting to see what the what the Republican plan will be. I mean, you've got to get it through both houses of Congress. And I know Mitt Romney and uh, some other Republican senators are, are talking about moving on some kind of plan that would be out there. But we need to find out what the plan will be, what the alternative plan will be, how much it will cost and how many people will be covered and then compare it with Obamacare. And that'll be that'll be the real bottom line on all
1: this. Kevin, it strikes me that when the court rules on this, should they go as far as they are capable of going, it will throw an incredible bomb right into the middle of the 2020
4: elections. Well, that to me is what the thing that sounds like it could be most interesting. And kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, I mean, someone, it, the, the person who can win this race and, the, and that nomination on the Democratic side might be the one who can most clearly articulate a plan that people can latch on to but will that be a plan that can actually get Ed, through Congress?
1: I'm sorry Kevin. Ed, you're a longtime Republican. Do mm-hmm. you hope the court overturns Obamacare? Do you think that would be, to, to uh, that would disadvantage Republicans moving forward?
2: I think that it will force uh, us to take a hard look at providing quality health care in this country and come up with something that's worth okay, it. Okay, but that's... that. No, and that, honestly, that's it. I, well, you're I, on I, the same page I, I with Sally Harold I truly believe that we need to come up with a solution. <laughs> I got involved, yes, I'm a Republican and Sally's a Democrat, but we both got into politics because we like policy. And I like good policy. I I don't think, I think there's certain aspects of Obamacare that are good. Some aspects are bad. And I think that it doesn't really solve a lot of our long-term problems. So I think that we need to come up with a better solution. But it's time for folks on both sides to sit down and come up with a workable solution that controls costs and provides quality care.
4: Kevin? That would sure be great because we've gotten to the point in the country where every time it comes down to those nine people on the supreme court every no one has the patience to work things out all they have yeah. to, uh, effort all they feel like they should do is take it to court and let it get to the supreme court and the supreme court is there to provide whether call
2: balls and strikes it's not there to create policy and it's time for us to move that policy back into the halls of congress
3: and this will come down likely to this a supreme court decision next year and that will uh, lead to this becoming healthcare once again becoming a huge issue in the uh, political campaigns.
1: Wow. Alright, we're going to watch how it unfolds. Uh, it really has been it's, it is is fascinating Sally, what a huge role healthcare has played in election cycles going back as far as twenty, well before 2016 but certainly in our contemporary races starting with the presidential race in 2016 and moving forward and for that matter off your elections in twenty. Uh, uh, 14, uh, the after Obamacare was passed, it, it, it continues to be one of the most explosive issues we deal with.
0: It's amazing that we've allowed this crisis to extend as long as we have without getting anything done.
1: Yeah. All right. Again, that's something that we're going to watch as the uh, election moves forward. Um, Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk about the Secretary of State's office and questions about election security, not just in Georgia, but in uh, election systems across the country. You're listening to Political Rewind.
4: Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start. And by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call
1: 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org cars. And thanks.
2: The U.S. military is considered the most powerful in the world with a caveat. A long list from the F-35 to Patriot missiles are all hackable. So we go to war, and the enemy pushes the button, and none of our weapons work. I'm Ari Shapiro. The vulnerabilities and capabilities of American cybersecurity this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: Four till seven today on GPB and gpbnews.org, or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. We're back on Political Rewind. Okay, uh, truth in lending, you know, transparency here. Uh, at the very beginning of the show, you heard me say that one of the topics we are going to talk about is how the Department of Homeland Security sent out a memo to the Secretary of State's office here in Georgia saying, uh, talking about election vulnerabilities in terms of possible foreign interference. Uh, we've already heard One of the things, Kevin, I do really like about our show is that... Uh, People like in the Secretary of State's office are listening. They have already said they really hate the fact that we use the word vulnerable and we related it specifically to what's happening in Georgia. So let's explain the situation, okay? Okay, let's take a stab at All right. You. So, um, there, we have just seen, as a result of a lawsuit in which a lot of paperwork was dumped out into pu- the public that the Department of Homeland Security before last November's election set out a memo warning Georgia election officials that that the systems could be vulnerable to interference, partly things like a social media influence campaign, but also potential uh, problems in terms of uh, the election machinery. Itself. That's the story that the AJC reported yesterday in a in a long piece by Mark Nissey. I think it was. Um, now, it, the Secretary of State's office l- let us know a couple things that are really worth pointing out here. Number one, this was not Georgia specific. The memo went to election offices in states around the country. So it wasn't as if Georgia itself was um, particularly vulnerable in any way at all. And the Secretary of State's office provided us with a statement from Homeland Security, which says this. As part of our ongoing support to state and local election officials, DHS regularly shares information that would help them identify and manage risks to their systems. Leading up to the 2018 election, the department shared information with state officials providing details on types of risks to elections and they go on to say these are not specific to Georgia but could be applicable to states across the country. So the Secretary of State's State's office very sensitive, very worried that people have concerns about the security of our election.
4: Well, uh, of course they're sensitive but then they should be. I mean uh, isn't the integrity of our elections among the the most important thing we should be worried about? And we do know that those Rush, the Russian troll farm did target Atlanta, not necessarily the and Georgia, not necessarily to to uh, get into the voting system, but we did uh, a big story about how they had found a way, uh, created fake social media accounts, all of this stuff, and and the big picture here is they're actually accomplishing what they need to accomplish, which is creating all of this anxiety about what's going on. Integrity of elections should be something we can all agree on and that we all believe in and that we all are willing to pay for.
1: And, of course, had this build already on the mistrust that um, was generated during the 2018 cycle by those voices out there who said we had voter suppression in yep. Georgia, and that. this all kind of is, is part of a larger question about whether Georgians are trusting in how the elections are held i think uh, there, there were a lot of accusations
2: that were made uh, both in terms of the election system and in terms of the voter uh roles and that sort of thing uh the fact of the matter is that you in, know in full disclosure i've represented the lieutenant governor in a lawsuit in which we won uh, at the trial level, the court found that there was no evidence. This was the case in which there yeah. was a,
1: dro- a marked drop-off yeah. between the votes tallied in the lieutenant governor's yeah. race and the other statewide races on the ballot. And
2: we were able to establish that, that that was not the result of anything nefarious going on within the election system itself. And I think that the Secretary of State is is understandably... Uh, Well, they're understandably concerned to maintain voter integrity, but they also want to make sure that folks don't get involved in hysteria when it comes to possible problems. And all they're trying to say here is that, hey, yes, we got this memo last fall, but so did every other state uh, warning us. And the fact of the matter is there has been shown no evidence uh, that in terms of our voter system, electronic voter system that was operating last fall, that it was subject uh, to some kind of malware or some type of interference. Uh, and it, it's a little technical, but to keep in mind that, yes, there were certain attempts to, to go after things that you could do so through the internet. Right. But our system is a closed system, uh, the election electronic b- voter system. In other words, there is no way to get to into our uh, electronic voter system through the internet.
1: Sally, it strikes me that it is incumbent upon any election office, whether it's in Georgia, Illinois, uh, California, to be incredibly transparent and communicate to voters the ways in which those offices are securing our elections mm-hmm. in the best way possible. Um, and I think the question becomes uh, that the Raffensperger people reacted to this story. I'm wondering how they, if, if in the future, if this leads them to understand they got to get out front before these things uh, become issues.
0: Well, you know, our current voting machines are like 20 years old. <laughs> um, I was serving in the house when, yeah. when we bought those machines. And at the time, everyone loved them. But as the years went by, uh, more and more vulnerabilities uh, were were seen. And and so I think everybody agrees at this point that it's time to replace those old, vulnerable well, machines. Well, and you are
1: doing that. And you all voted to, in fact, that's uh, right. uh, create... Do that's th- right.
0: And I sat on the committee that... Um, that passed the authorizing legislation for the next wave of voting machines, uh, which looks like we're going to get this kind of machine called a ballot marking device, which is the latest and greatest technology, just like our DREs were in the early 2000s.
1: Except there's a problem. The machines that we are likely to buy in Georgia, there are three bait companies that dominate the market. We'll see right. which one Georgia picks. And I believe I'm right in saying that two of the three of them use Microsoft um, Windows 7 as their operating system. And we've just learned this week, Microsoft is phasing out right. uh, Windows 7. And in fact, these machines may not be serviceable much longer.
0: That's that's right, Bill. And, and really, really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I spent a lot of time last session uh, studying the current voting machine vendors, which are for-profit companies that keep their source code to themselves. So in terms of being able to prove if something nefarious went on, it's a little hard to do. And it current, it currently, with our current DREs, um, it's very difficult to prove if anything went on. You don't have the evidence because you can't have access to the evidence because of proprietary information. So I looked at all three companies. Every company that was on the list, you mentioned three, had a fatal flaw about it, wow. which I would have loved to have gone to the committee and I tried to say, well, you have you can't have a ballot that has a barcode on it that's not human readable. Well, you can't use thermal paper that's going to fade away before you do your 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 audit and you're required, um, you know, keeping it for a certain number of years. These companies could not meet those requirements. Mm-hmm. It is a fairly new, newly developed
2: uh, technology.
0: Technology? And we're about to bite the bullet and use it statewide. Most states do not use the same machine statewide. That makes you more vulnerable.
1: Um, Kevin, we're really just about out of time for the show, but a final comment from you on this. I mean, we went through a 2018 election cycle with people concerned, suspicious, not clear on whether their votes were being counted accurately, whether people were getting to vote or not vote, and there's no reason to think that 2020 we're
4: not going to see a repeat of the same sort of concerns. I always come back to this this thing I heard President Carter say uh, one time, you know, the Carter senator monitors elections all over the world. And before they agree to do so, they examine the standards under which those elections are conducted. And he said, if we were asked to monitor elections in the United States, we would refuse. The standards are too low.
1: All right. We are out of time. Ed Lindsay, uh, glad to have you back with us. Glad your son's coming home. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Andy excited. Miller, thank you for joining us from Georgia Health News. Sally Harrell, thank you. Great to have you on for the first time. Kevin Riley, see you back here again next Tuesday for another political rewind. Meanwhile, I'll see all of you back here on uh, tomorrow when, as I said, we'll have Sam Olens, Theron Johnson, and Andrew Gillespie talk about what's happening in terms of bigotry and hate speech in politics today. I'm Bill Knight. See you tomorrow.